Good afternoon and welcome back. Thank you for coming back. I know that a lot of inclement weather is supposed to be coming our way, and so I don't know if some folks were somewhat leery of getting out this afternoon, but nonetheless, we appreciate you being here. We are looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 in our study this afternoon. The theme of our study this afternoon, Lord, teach us to pray. You remember over in Luke chapter 11, we have an account of what Luke records, a parallel passage here. And it was on this occasion that the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. One of the great things about becoming a child of God is that when we obey the gospel, God immediately deposits into our spiritual bank, if you please, a great number of spiritual blessings, one of which is prayer. And what a great blessing it is to know that God not only hears our prayers, but answers them. You remember Peter said, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. And to know that not only do we have the assurance that God hears our prayers, but I think also to understand that the Lord invites us to come before His throne. God wants those of us who are His children to come before Him and to literally lay before His throne our needs and wants and also to express our gratitude for all the many blessings that we enjoy in Him. Because of what Jesus did on Calvary, we have direct access to the throne of God. That ought to be encouraging to us. You remember Jesus said on one occasion that men ought to always pray and not grow weary in Luke chapter 18 in verse 1. In what typically we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus emphasizes the heart and the fact that everything that we do must be done with the proper motives and with the right heart. He talked about the pure in heart and how they will see God one day. But in chapter 6, Jesus teaches His disciples, that would be us, how to pray. Now there are some that have called this the Lord's Prayer. But really it is the model prayer. I would say that the Lord's Prayer would be more in line with John 17 when Jesus prayed for all who would believe on Him through the words of the apostles that they might be one. But in this particular passage of Scripture, there are really two very distinct thoughts that are shared. Number one, there is emphasis on the Father's will. Secondly, there is an emphasis on the needs of the Father's children. So that's how this particular prayer breaks down. So what I want to do is first and foremost talk for a moment or two about the will of the Father. Now you remember in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus had talked about those in the first century, the religious leaders that were putting on a show, religiously speaking. 
And Jesus said, all their works they do to be seen by men. And thus, he said, they have their reward. But it's in light of that that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so note, if you would, what he says beginning in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your will. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. One of the first things that really strikes me about this prayer has to do with its simplicity. I have no doubt that some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that when it came to prayer, they could have been very ostentatious. They would have used what we might call a lot of verbiage and flowery praises. And no doubt people might have been impressed by that. But there are only a little over 50 words used by Jesus in our English Bible in this prayer. The simplicity, the brevity or shortness of it. Now, there are a couple of thoughts that really come to mind. Number one, to know that I don't have to have a wide usage of the English vocabulary to come before God. And number two, I don't have to use a lot of verbiage, flowery phrases. But I can literally go before the throne of God and in a very simplistic way make known to Him my wants, my wishes, and to express to Him my gratitude for all the many blessings that I enjoy. But then, note if you would, Jesus said, My Father, or our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. To remember that when we enter into the throne room of God, that we're not necessarily talking to an equal per se, but rather we are in the presence of the everlasting Creator, the one of whom Isaiah said many years ago, high and lifted up. And what Jesus is saying is that when we come before His throne in prayer, that God needs to be sanctified, to be set apart, that we ought to bring before His throne a certain amount of decorum or reverence as we bow before Him. In Isaiah chapter 6, when those angelic beings, the seraphim, as they were before that throne, you remember they were crying out one to another, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah was literally taken back when he saw the second member of the Godhead on that throne. When we come before the throne of God, whether it's publicly or privately, we ought to do so with awe or reverence. In Psalm 89, verse 7, the psalmist said many years ago, and he's talking about those who would come before God corporately. But he said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all them that are about Him. 
Isaiah said many years ago, talking about God, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. And so again, the idea, we are in the presence of a holy God. As God instructed Moses in the long ago to remove his sandals, and the reason was, he said, because the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. When we come before the throne of God, we are on holy ground because we are before a holy God. But then there's another thought. It has to do with a submissive nature. Now Jesus said, your kingdom come. The kingdom here was in anticipation, or we might say in prospect. Now bear in mind that the Lord Jesus had already said, or rather He would say later, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 16, that he would build the church, and he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. The Lord came, and his intent was to establish the kingdom. That kingdom had been in the mind of God before time began. The prophets of old foretold of that exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. Daniel saw it as a kingdom that would stand forever, the stone cut without hands that would literally fill the whole earth. In Mark 9, Jesus said, There are some standing here that shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. So to understand that the kingdom at this point in time was in prospect. There was the anticipation of the establishment of this spiritual institution known today as the church. But note, if you would, what Jesus said. Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will for the human family on earth? When Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has a will, doesn't He? That will is before Him in heaven. But how do we know what His will is? How can we pray as Jesus did, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we don't know what His will is? How then do we come to know what His will is? There's only one way. The only way that I can come to an appreciation and understanding of the will of God on earth is to spend time in His Word. That's, all, that's the only way I can come to know it. That means I've got to spend time reading, studying, and meditating on the truth of God. When Jesus came to earth, did He understand His mission? Did He know what His will on earth was before Him? Well, the answer to that would be yes, He did. He said that many times. Matter of fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me in John 6 verse 38. Jesus came to accomplish the will of the heavenly Father. Well, what was that will? To redeem the human family. In John 17 verse 4, Jesus said, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Again, underscoring God's holy will. That will was that we might enjoy fellowship, that we might have access to His throne. 
That being the case, as a Christian, I've got to understand and know what God's will is. Now, one of the things that God wills is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Remember what Jeremiah said many, many years ago? Jeremiah said, Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. God's design is that the human family, humankind, might have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then He said, teaching them to observe all things. Once we convert someone to the cause of Christ, we're to teach, to instruct, to encourage them to know more about the will of Almighty God, to understand our place in the body and the design of the body and the work before the body. God's desire is that the human family here believe and obey the gospel. The world today is certainly not in harmony with the will of the Father. But Jesus said we're to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can bet, your, you can bet that God's will has been accomplished from heaven's perspective in terms of that redemptive plan. But God's will today is that we as His people might reach a lost and dying world. And then there's another, I think, important point. The prayer that is spoken of by Jesus, or the prayer, the model prayer that was used by Jesus to instruct His disciples. It was selfless in nature, wasn't it? In the first portion of this prayer, the Lord Jesus teaches us that ultimately what is preeminent or paramount in life is not my will, nor is it my wants and needs or wishes, so to speak. But ultimately what is most important is the will of Almighty God. Now He's going to talk about our needs and He's going to say that we ought to pray for those things. But I think really what he's saying is that when it, comes to, when it comes to our lives here upon planet Earth, ultimately the Father's will is above any and everything. Sometimes that's hard to understand, isn't it? Jesus taught that if we're going to be His disciples or His followers, one of the things that we're to demonstrate is selflessness. Remember in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If any man come after me, let him deny himself. Did Jesus set the example of someone who was selfless? Yes, He did. We live in a very selfish age, and yet what Jesus is teaching us is that when we approach the throne of Almighty God, his will stands above any and everything. Now, what about the second portion of this prayer? Jesus said in the long ago that we are to pray to the Father 
for our bread, that is, for our physical needs. So with that in mind, listen to what he said. Our Father in heaven, how will be, how, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will, be do, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. In Luke chapter 11, verse 3, Jesus said in teaching his disciples to pray, give us day by day our daily bread. Everything that we have ultimately comes from the same source, doesn't it? That's God. Jesus is teaching us that when it's all said and done, we are utterly dependent on the Lord. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, said that it is the Lord who gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. We eat His food. We drink His water. We breathe His air. The very clothes that we wear ultimately go back to what? If you're wearing cotton today, well, who made, who made that seed that produced cotton? Wool, silk, whatever. All of that goes back to a single creator. The home that you live in. Somebody framed that. The wood that is used in the home that you live in came from what? From a tree. And where'd that tree come from? Again, it goes back to the Creator, doesn't it? So when Jesus said that we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread, I think He's teaching us that we ought to be grateful for all of the blessings that we enjoy. Now, we enjoy an abundance of spiritual blessings. But in this context, he's talking about those physical blessings that we have to have that sustain us day by day. James said every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. The psalmist wrote many years ago, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. All the things that we enjoy from the handiwork of God. The song that we sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. So to pray to God and to express thanksgiving for all of the wonderful blessings that He bestows upon us. Now, note the continuation. Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke chapter 11, again, Jesus talks about praying that we might be forgiven of our debts as we forgive everyone who trespasses or sins against us. Number one, to understand that I need forgiveness from Almighty God. The sin problem is a very real problem. When we obey the gospel, we continue to stand in need of the cleansing blood of Christ, don't we? And the beauty of that is that we have an advocate who is pleading our case before, before the throne of God. And the basis upon which we stand right with God is the blood of Jesus. Now John teaches us that if we're walking in the light, 
that we enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus on a daily basis. But you remember down in verse 9, John said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That little three-letter word, all. To know that I can pray to the Father in heaven and to ask Him to forgive me. Now he's talking about those of us who are in a covenant relationship with God. God's second law of pardon applies to those of us in Christ. We pray, we repent, and what does God do? He forgives, doesn't He? But when we obeyed the gospel, the blood of Christ was applied to our heart. Our hearts have been purified through that cleansing blood. As John said, unto Him who loved us, washed us in our sins by His own blood. But not only are we to pray that the Lord would forgive us because we are weak and fallible creatures. We make mistakes. Now, bear in mind, John teaches us that when we become a Christian, Paul teaches the same thing in Romans chapter 6, that we are to die to the love and the practice of sin, that old way of life. But that does not mean that we're not going to stumble and fall from time to time. Why? Because we're human. But to know that we have an advocate in heaven who's pleading our case. But Jesus said not only are we to ask God to forgive us, but we have the responsibility of forgiving those who trespass or sin against us. In Luke's account, he said we are to forgive everyone. No exclusions. Did you know that our forgiveness as a Christian is contingent on our willingness to forgive our fellow man. That I can't withhold forgiveness from someone who asks of me forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus said down in verse 14. He said, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You ever heard somebody say, you know what, I don't care what they say, what they do, I will never, ever forgive that individual. You ever heard somebody say that? Sometimes folks are reluctant to forgive. And yet what Jesus is saying is, we all need forgiveness. And since we as His children need forgiveness, we need to have mercy, kindness, forgiveness toward other people. James said in the long ago that judgment is without mercy to Him who has shown no mercy. If you're not kind, merciful, tender-hearted, forgiving, then you're going to be in trouble. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, listen to him, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. Where would you be without forgiveness? You'd be lost, wouldn't you? And what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying is, if we withhold forgiveness from someone who sins against us, then we place ourselves in spiritual jeopardy. 
And God's not going to forgive us. He wants us to be people who are merciful and kind and forgiving. And then, note if you would the continuation. Jesus said, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now Jesus has already talked about the problem of sin and how even as His people we still grapple with that problem. To understand that the devil's doing everything within his power to destroy, to undermine our faith. And Jesus is saying that we ought to be ever mindful of the fact that the age-old adversary, the nemesis of man, is prowling about doing everything he can to destroy. So we're to pray to the Lord because temptation and trial come our way daily, don't they? To pray that God would bless us with the strength and resolve to resist, to turn when temptation comes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that when temptation comes, God will make a way of escape. So a choice lies before us. God's not going to tempt us above what we're able to bear. But will, with the temptation, make also a way of escape. Back in Genesis chapter 39, when Potiphar's wife made advances toward Joseph, Joseph had a way of escape, didn't he? Well, what did he do? The Bible says he fled. Now, he did indeed suffer because she misrepresented the facts, but God was still with him, wasn't he? And you remember what Joseph said in the long ago, how can I sin and do this great wickedness against the Lord? Why? Because ultimately sin is against the Lord. Temptation comes our way every single day. James said that man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. Lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so he would say down in about verse 16, do not be deceived my beloved brethren, to know how the devil operates, to understand his tactics, his schemes, as Paul would talk about in Ephesians 6, his methodologies, and to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, to be equipped with the sword of the Spirit, to put on the whole armor of God, and to resolve within our mind, we're not going to give in. I like what Jesus said. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, the evil one was after Jesus, wasn't he? Go back and read Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. The devil tempted Jesus, and he wasn't through with him on that occasion. The Bible says that he left him until an opportune time. You may successfully defend yourself against temptation and the devil today, but he's coming back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So to pray to God on a daily basis, regular basis, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, the enemy, the, enemy, the wicked one, as Jesus said in Matthew 13. Prayer is a great blessing, isn't it? 
And Jesus here lays down some principles that will help us learn to pray, to pray acceptably in His sight. So on the one hand, you have emphasis on the Father's will. On the other hand, you have an emphasis on our needs as His children. Basic, fundamental needs that we all have. I like the words of James in chapter 1, verse 12. James had already talked about those outward trials common to all people. Verses 13 through 15, he talks about the inward temptations that are posed to us by the devil. But he said in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, because when he has been tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord's promised to them that love him. To know that we can withstand the advances of the enemy. That we can rise above the trials and tribulations of life. That we can learn from those things. And then secondly, that we have the ability, the stamina, the resolve, if our heart's right, to say no to temptation. To overcome the enemy. 100 years from now, we'll all be in the presence of God. Life will be behind us. And the question is, where will we be? Prayerfully, we'll be in the presence of God. And Jesus teaches His disciples, He teaches us how to pray. Because we need Him more than ever while on this earth. My prayer today is that if you're not a Christian that you would do what the Bible says to do, and that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus had a ministry of about three, three and a half years. During that period of time, He literally changed the landscape of the world. And because of His work on Calvary, we can enjoy forgiveness. We can have our sins washed away. Now the Bible says in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Baptism is preceded by faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Repentance of sin, confession. And then once we are baptized into Christ, the Bible tells us we're added to the body of Christ. We enjoy all those great spiritual blessings. Our goal from that day forward is ultimately to get home to be with God one day. I hope you're on the road to the promised land. That one day you'll be in the presence of God, that your children, grandchildren will be there with you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to come to Christ. If you're here this afternoon and your life's not what it ought to be and you want the prayers of the church... Maybe you feel weak and struggling and you just want people to pray with you and for you. Well, that's what we're here for. We would be more than happy to do that as we stand and sing.